If you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3, in the month of November, we wanted to focus on what God has done for us and what God is doing through us right now, what God is doing in us. And so we're looking in Colossians 3. The title today is A Transformed Humanity, and we're looking at the church has been chosen and transformed by the grace of God so that all of life would be to the praise of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at a picture of the church. And um, so if you have your Bibles, Colossians 3, and we're just going to jump right in this morning. So I want to encourage you, uh, stand and we will read together. Here at Timberline, we stand at the reading of God's Word to simply uh, just show that we believe God's Word is inerrant, it's inspired, and it comes with the very authority of God. Colossians 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come now and we look at your word, your inspired, perfect authoritative word, and we look at the picture of your church, of your bride, of your body. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom today to understand. God, I pray that you would give us humility, that we would submit to how you have called us to live. Lord, I pray that you fill us with great joy and thankfulness as we look at how you have called us and the privilege we have of not only living in your kingdom, but, being, but by being used by you to help others grow in their Christ-likeness. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you that we can gather here. Be greatly glorified today as we worship you through your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, I'm summarize a little bit where we've been, and then we'll jump into our text. Last week, we looked at We talked about a thing called two heads of humanity. We talked about how Adam represents all those who are born in sin and how Christ then comes and he represents all those who are born again, who have been holy and forgiven. We see that in Adam, there's great division. People are characterized by anger, rage, sexual immorality, idolatry, covetousness, and much more. People look out for their own interests, and they do whatever, uh, people look out for their interests, and they do whatever they can to obtain their desires despite the cost to others. If you look at Genesis 3, Adam, uh, Adam and Eve, they sin. As soon as God approaches them, Eve blames the serpent, Adam blames Eve, and then he blames God. In Adam, we all seek to protect ourselves. We divide over anything, and we see this very clearly. It's very prevalent in society today. Um, 
We divide over black and white. That's been clearly the case for the last two to three years in America. We divide over Republican, Democrat. We divide over Trump or not Trump. We're seeing riots now because people did not get the one that they voted. And so rather than submitting to the process that we have agreed to in our Constitution, we now are dividing over things because it's not the way we want. In Adam, we're divisive. We, we don't even need to look for things to be divisive. We create them out of our own hearts. But then we come to Christ. And when we are born again, we see that there's no division in Christ. If you look at verse 11, this is an amazing verse. Here there is not Greek and Jew. Those are two dividing lines. Greek, Jew, you're either one or the other. And he's saying, in Christ, that's done away with. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free. But Christ is all and in all. It's not that there's not those type of people, but in Christ, those divisions are done away with and we're held together by the blood of Christ. The body, is, the body of Christ is a body in which there is no division. The church is a people who prefer to place other people's needs and preferences above their own. The church strives to maintain relationships rather than break them. The church gathers regularly to encourage and help one another. The church shares one common goal, the praise of God through Jesus. The church is a people who love their king and seek to please him at all times. And the church uses their words not to divide, but to build up and encourage others. Now to some of you, as we talk about that, it kind of sounds like some fictitious, utopian society. Or maybe you go back 30, 40, 50 years and you're thinking, leave it to beaver type family. And it's like, that just doesn't really exist. But in God's word, we're not reading fiction. We're reading a reality. We're looking at what has happened to this people as they have been chosen out of this world, and as we see in verse 12, as they've been made holy and as they're loved by God, we see that God is making a new humanity. And in this passage, we're going to see what this new humanity looks like. And so today we're going to answer the question, what does it look like to be made into the image of Jesus? And I'll give you one hint. It's going to involve others. This is not your own individual quest this is something that God uses the church to accomplish. And so as we answer this question, I want to encourage you to be thinking, where is God revealing that I need to be made more like Jesus? I just want that to be kind of in the back of your head as we're going over this description of the church, this description of what it looks like to live like Jesus. Where's the Holy Spirit pressing in on areas that he's calling to repent, on areas that he's transforming? So as we begin, we'll begin with, number one, the character of Christ covers us. Now last week, we primarily focused on what we take off. And you can go back, we primarily focused on verses 5 through 11. And in verses 5 and verse 8, we see that there's two lists. Each list is a list of vices, a list of sin, and they contain five vices each. And the things that are listed destroy community, just as all sin does. If you think about it. If you're an angry, sexually immoral, lying, covetous person, are you embracing society and encouraging community? No. And those are the descriptions that we have. You're breaking community. 
In verse 12, we come across a list of five virtues that we're told to put on. Verse 10, we're, we're told we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now we're going to see what that looks like. What does it look like to be renewed? What does it look like to be made like Jesus? What do we put on? And so we see that we come with a list of five virtues that, of course, is to contrast the two lists of five. Now, the first one we come to is compassionate hearts. Now, it seems normal to us just as we read that. Nothing stands out. But the word hearts actually is a word that refers to the bowels. And the Greeks would use this word to refer to the place where our most violent emotions would come from, where our anger, where our rage, where our harshness, where all of our... um, or sin would emerge from, would be from our hearts or um, our, our bowels, as this word is referred to. But now in Christ, the violence that used to indwell us when we were in Adam has now been replaced with compassion, tenderness, kindness. The words humility and meekness, which we also see, are, were abhorred by the Greeks. They said these qualities are weak. We don't want to be known as, as humble and meek people. But in Christ, the things that are despised in Adam are valued. And I hope you know these qualities are anything but weak. I mean, if you think Jesus left heaven out of humility, he leaves heaven. He comes to the cross that he would suffer, taking your sin and my sin that we would be forgiven, and he bears the wrath of God for you and me so that we could be saved, so that we could be adopted. I mean, does that sound weak, bearing the wrath of God? Humility is anything but weak. It's through humility Jesus himself crushed the kingdom of darkness and defeated sin, death, and Satan. And so if we want to say, you know what, humility is weak. You know, that is a weak quality. If we do come to that conclusion, then we can say Jesus, in absolute weakness, destroyed the strength of the rulers of this world. So the very weakness of God is stronger than everything that this world has because Jesus comes disarming them, which we read about in Colossians chapter 2. So in the Gospels, we see Jesus revealing these five virtues as he loved the lepers, as he touched the lepers, people that nobody would even come near, as he went to the prostitutes, as he healed the lame, as he touched the sick, as he paid attention to the widows, as he loved the orphans. In Adam, all these people are neglected. In Christ, all these people are accepted. The church is not made up of just the rich and social elite. And it's not that there's no social, economic, and racial diversity within the church. There is. It's just that those things don't divide us. In fact, One of the pictures we have in Revelation 7 is that one day around the throne, there is going to be a people from every tongue, language, and nation, and tribe, and they're going to be gathered around. So there's this great diversity, and they come together as one body because the only thing that can unite all peoples is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're having a picture here is the church coming together as one because in Jesus We are made into the very body of Christ. This is why then in verse 13, we see that the church bears with one another and forgives one another. I tell you what, I don't don't think people know how to be very good friends today. Let me just think about that. And, And I'll say, especially guys, I think women have more friendships. I'll say a lot of them are superficial. Guys 
definitely struggle with friendships and definitely struggle with going deep in friendships. Most of the guys on the street that I live on um, have very few friends and a very, um, a very shallow relationships. And those are most of the men that I meet. And I think because we don't know how to bear with one another. We don't know how to persist in relationships. We don't know how to forgive one another. I mean, think about it. In Adam, we leave a trail of destruction. Someone hurts us, we hurt them. Someone doesn't treat us the way we think we should be treated, we slander them. And now we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have emails, we have tons of social media ways for publicly slandering those that we do not agree with or that have somehow disagreed or hurt us. Someone does one too many things wrong. The common thing, and even in churches, you'll often hear people say, well, I just can't love them anymore. I'm cutting them off. I'm not going to endure with them anymore. They have done it one too many times, and we almost hold it as a badge of valor. Well, I I love them a lot, but now, no more. They hurt me one too many times. But in Christ, we come and we see we, we bear with one another. The word bear means to endure something unpleasant. It's what compassion and patience and humility and meekness and kindness looks like lived out. You might say that you're patient. You might say, I'm a very compassionate person. Um, the proof is, do you bear with others? Do you bear with those who hurt you? Do you bear with those who, who step on your toes? Do, do you bear with others and give them the benefit of the doubt? Do you give grace? Too often, I think, Christians, I think as Christians we do this, we fall into what's called spiritual amnesia, and we, we, we act like we're in Adam because we forgot that we are now in Christ. This is why the one thing we talked about the last couple of weeks, the taking off and putting on of Christ is to be the regular activity of the believer. Every day when you come to God's word and you're reading it, and I encourage in the morning, you're reading the word of God, you're being reminded of what you're taking off and you're being reminded of what you're putting on. You're being reminded that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and you've been transferred to the kingdom of the sun. Every day you come into your word, you're reminding that Jesus is king, not Adam, not yourself. You're reminded of how you've been saved by grace that you would then give grace to others Because what God has done to you, he also wants to do through you. I hope you know that. God gives you grace so then you would be gracious to others. God bore us and our sins so that we would bear with one another. God forgave us, which we'll look at in a moment, so that we would forgive others. And in fact, when we bear with one another, we're going to be practicing forgiveness, right? I mean, that's that's the natural. If we're going to be enduring and persisting in relationships, then we're going to be pursuing forgiveness. And how do we forgive? He doesn't leave it to us to describe or define it. He says, as Christ forgave you. And then he says, so you also must forgive. I know a lot of times... um, I've talked to you and you've talked to others and just talking to Christians. We feel that sometimes God's word's a little unclear. You ever have those troubles like, I'm not sure what he's saying in this passage. I love passages like this. Forgive as Christ forgave you, so you also must forgive. If you want to know God's will for you as a believer, one of the very things is that you forgive. When Peter denied Jesus, what did Jesus do? He went to him. 
He offered forgiveness. He reconciled him. When we are offended, we're not to sit back in our armchairs waiting for people to come to us, but we go to them. We offer grace just as God has offered us grace. Now remember, this is a picture of the church. This is a picture of a transformed humanity. This is what it looks like as Christ now dwells within us. His grace and his spirit is upon us that this is how we would live. Paul is not saying you do this in your own strength. Now just suck it up and forgive people. But he's saying this is what it is to be raised with Christ, to be hidden in Christ. For Christ to live in you is to live like Jesus. And as Christians, um, we then come to verse 14 and we see that it's love that holds all this together. If we're to be compassionate, if we're to be kind, if we're to be patient, if we're to bear with one another, if we're to forgive one another, then it's only going to be as we put on love regularly. Which is why I believe one of the best ways to do that is through God's word every morning. Some people do it at night, and that's great. I prefer the morning to start off the day with reminding exactly who I am and who I am not. We put on love. That makes sense, right? 1 John 4, 8, God says, I am love. And it's because God is love that Jesus in John 13, he turns to his disciples after he's washed their feet. And he says, it's your love for one another that will prove to this world you are my disciples. It's love. It's as we put on love, we are revealing to one another the love of Christ and proving that we are of Christ. It's not your IQ. It's not your house, it's not your riches, it's not your knowledge, it's not your possessions. None of those things distinguish you. None of those things are what makes a Christian. It's God's love in you and your love for others that reveals that you are in Christ. In fact, love is the very thread that holds all the other virtues together that we would be covered with Christ. Um, as fireworks explode every July 4th, we love fireworks. As fireworks explode filling the night sky, God's love is in you that it would burst forth for all to see. It's to literally be bursting forth every day as we're putting it on. And when the church comes together, it's like one candle coming together with a million other candles. With one candle, there's very limited heat and light, but when you join that candle together, with all the other candles. And we'll, we'll probably do this Christmas Eve. We'll, we'll light the candles. You know what happens when all the candles get lit? It gets hot in here. That's what happens when the church gathers together. The world sees the light and the heat of those who are in Christ. So let me ask you two things. Um, one's a question and one's just kind of a, a word of encouragement. When people see you, do they see Christ? This, this, what we've been going over is, is the characteristics of Christ. Do they see Christ? Do they see love and humility and patience and compassion? I imagine, if you're like me, uh, some of these you go, I think I'm doing okay there. And some of these you're going, ah, not very well in many ways. And so I, I just want to urge you to begin prayerfully considering right now what God is calling you to take off and what God is calling you to put on. If you're struggling with patience, why is that? Begin praying that God would take off that which hinders Christ and be praying that you'd be putting on compassionate hearts and love and kindness and patience that you would bear with one another. Next. Oh, the, the, um, 
the word of encouragement. I think it's a word of encouragement. Um, if there's someone you know, and, and I venture to say in a room like this, that you know there's someone you have not been loving well. And I, I would say, especially within the body of Christ, because that's what Paul's talking about. But even if it's outside the body of Christ, if there's someone that you have not been loving well, if you know you've been more divisive towards this person, or just standoffish, I, I want to encourage you to repent and go to them. Ask for forgiveness. Your act of repentance toward them will be your first act of loving them. I just want to encourage you, and I imagine that, that, that that's happened here. I imagine that there's something here that needs to be reconciled. Uh, we're people. We still struggle with sin. We're still taking off and putting on. So I just want to encourage you, where you're, wherever you're at there, where the Spirit's leading you, if you feel like you are at odds with someone, and maybe it's just something completely silly in many ways, I encourage you to go to them today. Next, the peace of Christ rules us. Not only do we put on the character of Christ, but the peace of Christ rules us. If you look at verse 15, it says, we read that the peace of Christ is to rule our hearts, and the word rule means to umpire. So kind of like in, in baseball, the umpire is the one who determines safe, out, ball, strike. He determines those things. And so the peace of Christ umpires our hearts. In chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that Jesus makes peace by the blood of the cross. So by faith in Jesus, you're no longer under God's wrath, but now you're at peace with him. And now that peace rules your hearts so that you would be at peace with one another. Let me ask you, what, what umpires your hearts? You ever think about that? What governs and is dictating your heart? Do you find that you're one of those who are just constantly battling with people lately? Do you struggle with others because you want your way, because you think your way is the right way? Maybe you get upset when people ask you for your opinion, and then they don't take it, or they, ask, or they don't ask you for your opinion at all. What, what governs your hearts? What umpires your heart? Before grace, when we're in Adam, we struggled with others because we were selfish and we wanted our way. But when we look at verse 15, we've been joined now to the body of Christ, to the one body of Jesus. The reason the peace of Christ rules us is because we've gone from the kingdom of one to the kingdom of many. We've gone from the kingdom of darkness where we dwelled, where we ruled, and we were against all the other kingdoms, to now the kingdom of the Son in which we've been joined with all the other parts of the body that we would live together as one. So what this means is we don't wage war on ourselves. Your arms don't wage war on your toes. That would be weird. Like, and your toes would lose. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, there's no way they're going to overcome, like, the arms and hands. Um, our knees don't wage war against our ears. Our ears are going to lose, right? And that would be weird if we're beating ourselves up. And so what, what we're learning is that we've been joined in one body, the body of Christ, that we would encourage one another, that we would be at peace with one another. Our love for one another, our unity, our refusal to fight with one another is one of the most powerful ways we proclaim the gospel in this world. And to say that the peace of Christ rules our hearts is to be determined 
to fight against division within your own heart. It's not that we're determined to fight against division of others. I mean, we, we ought to be peacemakers in that way. But we're against the division that rises up in our hearts. Because we're taking that sin off regularly that we'd be putting on the character of Christ. In John 17, 23, this is the priestly prayer of Jesus before he's arrested, before he's going to be crucified. And he's praying for, uh, for his disciples and he prays for us as the church. And one thing he does, and he prays that we would be one with one another because our oneness, our unity is one of the primary ways we testify of the gospel to this world. When the peace of Christ rules the body of Christ, the world cannot ignore that. I mean, think about this. When Christian marriages and relationships persist and refuse to be broken, we're not testifying to our strength. We're not testifying to our resolve. We're testifying to the power of the gospel within us. And this is something the world cannot ignore. In fact, the world will sit in awe as we display patience and peace and perseverance with one another. To have the peace of Christ rule our hearts is to war against the sin within us that wants to divide, that wants to battle with one another, that wants to fight for our own kingdoms. And look at verse 15. At the very end it says, And be thankful. We're thankful that we've been saved from the kingdom of one and brought into the kingdom of Christ. We're thankful that we've been saved from the kingdom of condemnation Because that's what we dwelled in. And now we've been brought into the kingdom of joy where where the Son of God rules, who in Colossians 1 is the one who creates all things, sustains all things, is the head of the church, reconciling you and me to himself that we would forever live like him. Next, a picture of the church. The word of Christ dwells in us. The word dwell means to make it home. The word richly means uh, that it is to dwell, it is to penetrate deep within us. But why? Why do we need God's word to dwell within us? And we could go through a, <clears throat> we could go through many reasons that the Bible will give us, but here in Colossians it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Why do we need God's word to dwell deep within us? Because you are the means of instructing and admonishing others in wisdom. Do you see that? It says, let the word of Christ dwell on you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. You have been raised with Christ so that you would be glorified with Christ. There's a connection there. All those who have been justified, declared righteous, will be made, will be glorified with Christ. We go back to Ephesians 1, or Colossians 1. You've been raised with Christ, that's verse 1. And verse 4 says, so that you will appear with Christ. All those who have been raised will appear. You have been raised so that you will be glorified. But then we learn the path to glory is what is called sanctification, being made more like Jesus. That's what we've been hitting on the last two weeks. And what we find out is it's in community with other believers that we're made more like Jesus. It's in community with others that we are made more like Jesus so that we would then be glorified with him. God uses the members of his body. So just, that's you, 
And that's me, and that's you on this side too. I wasn't just pointing to this side. It's all of us as the means of sanctifying the body. So how does that happen? Well, part of it is like this. So together we come. The word is going out. There is teaching. There is admonishing right now that takes place in the word. Sermons is a collective way the entire church at one time grows together in the word of God. But how else do we do this? We do it when we go to coffee shops with one another. We do it when we have Bible studies with one another. We do it when we call each other, when we help one another in our marriages, in our parenting. It's when we help one another with work and overcoming difficulties that we're experiencing. Your knowledge of God's word informs everything that you talk about. Do you know that? Everything you talk about is informed by the knowledge of, your, of, of God's word. So when someone's struggling in marriage, you come alongside them with the word of God. And this is something you do that I do. This is the role of every single believer. In fact, uh, just the other night, meeting with 12 guys, the Vine Project, and we looked at the fact that every member is called to use the word of God for the purpose of helping others become more like Jesus. I hope you know that you've been saved to be used by God. Isn't that an awesome Honoring and yet humbling privilege that we've been given. God saves you and uses you to help one another grow in wisdom and knowledge of God. You were saved to be a doctor. You were saved to be an encourager, a counselor, a teacher, a guide to other believers. That's the role that we take on so many times Every day. Anytime someone calls you and says, hey, what do you think about this? You're automatically given the opportunity to speak the gospel into that situation. And your knowledge of God's word will inform that. Isn't that amazing? That that's how God uses you and me. When someone is struggling with parenting or in their marriage, and you're just sitting, talking with them, and that issue comes up, you can simply say, let me pray with you. And you pray for God's sovereignty. You pray for God's um, will. You pray for wisdom. You pray for his grace to be upon them. You're instructing with the word of God at all times. Paul Tripp, a great pastor, theologian, and author, he wrote a book. It should be hands down, required reading for every single believer. And just so you know, starting in January, we're going to have some books that we place out, uh, just a few limited books in uh, the foyer back here that we recommend. This will be one of those books. It's titled, Instruments in the Hands of a Redeemer. The whole idea is that you and I are saved by God to be used by God as instruments in his hands for the purpose of growing others in Christ. Isn't that incredible? It's like this awesome privilege, and yet it's, it's a little scary. But yet God's, God dwells in us that we might do this. So just as a pre-med student will study the human body in cellular and micro and molecular biology so that he will be an effective doctor one day, so we continue to study God's word day in and day out, taking off and putting on the things of Christ so that we would be able to help others become more like Jesus. That's what you're doing every day when you're reading your word. When you study God's word, not only are you growing in likeness of Christ, you're, pre- you're preparing yourself, equipping yourself to help others. And now notice... Paul mentions singing. We're going to camp out here for a moment because this is, this is strange, I think. 
or I think we think it's strange. Let the word of Christ dwell on you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, commentators are a little divided because the actual structure is slightly confusing of how this sentence is put together. And so there's really two primary thoughts, and we don't really need to choose between them. We really don't need to choose between them. I think they're both right. And if only one is being referred to here, we can easily find another passage that will clearly articulate the other point in other parts of the word. So we're just going to present them both. Uh, number one, well, words to sing, Psalms and spiritual songs. It's just a variety of songs. Just as we sing a variety of songs, so the early church sung a variety of songs. So what happens when we do this? Well, number one, singing is a means in which the word, word of God dwells deeply within us. That's the point. If we come back, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, you do that through teaching, you do that through admonishing, and you do that through singing. So one of the ways God's word is rooted deep within our hearts is when we sing the very doctrines of God's word. This means it's not okay to skip uh, the, or to come in late, to skip the music, come straight for the sermon, leave early, skip the music. I know growing up, I, I still struggle with music. I'm not the most musically inclined. Um, and for a long time, I did not, I did not enjoy singing. And I would say that's largely ignorance, and that was largely immaturity on my part, that God has, has grown and is still growing in me. So number one, singing is a means of the word of God rooting itself in you. Number two, singing is a means in which we teach and correct one another. This is the other side of it. So we come back. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The way you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, commentators will argue, is singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Both, both uh, um, interpretations are very valid. We can go to other parts of Scripture and validate those. But what we see, we sing correct doctrine so that we help one another understand the gospel. There's a lot of Jesus is my boyfriend songs today. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like if you listen to the Christian radio stations, there are times you're listening to that song and you're going, who's he singing about? Is that a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Um, this doesn't make sense. Like, there's no real clear direction that it's actually talking about God. When we come and we sing songs, we want them to be doctrinally robust songs. There's a lot of songs we don't sing because they don't do a good job handling doctrine. And a lot of songs actually present wrong doctrine. And so one of the ways we, we choose our songs here is how does it align with the text and... Does the song actually, is it, does it value the word of God? Does it teach and correct with right doctrine? Um, so, to say that, before we move on, uh, this is what I wish someone had done to me, so I'm, I'm not going to do it to you, and you're, so take it for how you like it. Um, Paul's describing what it looks like for you and me to be made more like Jesus. There's a lot of things, taking off, putting on, peace of Christ ruling, dwelling the, letting the word of Christ dwell in us through teaching and admonishing. But it appears that singing is also a way we grow in Christ's likeness. Do you know the implication there? What are we to do then? That was so persuasive. What are we to do? We're to sing. Do you sing? When we sing the songs, when we gather. I want you to think about that. I know some of you don't. I see you. 
My kids see you, and they're up front. Do you sing when we, when we gather together? Or do you stand solemn-faced like you're about to get your flu shot? Or maybe something more painful at the doctor. I, I want you to think about this. Now, maybe it's because you weren't aware why we sing. That was me, a large part of my life. I just, no clue that singing was such an amazing way of not only understanding God's word, but also rejoicing in the gospel and responding to the gospel. Um, but, just to bring to clarity, singing is a means in which God burrows his word deep within our hearts. Therefore, to not sing is to resist one of the means in which God grows us in the knowledge of his words. I just want you to realize that. If you're not, you're actually resisting a means of grace in which God wants you to know his word more. Number two, singing is a means in helping others come to correct understanding of God's word. By not singing, you're resisting, um, you're resisting a means in which to help others better understand the word of God. Now you might argue here, other people are singing. The words are up on the screen. I'm not hindering anyone if I don't sing. Um, my kids look at you and you're hindering them. You are. And you're hindering the children around you when you don't sing. Because they look at you and they say, well, that man doesn't sing. So maybe singing is just not important. Maybe I don't need to sing. Maybe singing is extremely optional. Maybe, maybe this is an important part. Maybe we can just skip and come straight for the sermon and then leave. Because that's, that's where the real meat is. And, and that's what happens. And that's why we're actually having generations who don't sing much now. So I just want to encourage you there. Maybe slightly step on your toes. But you have to bear with me because it says you have to. I just want to encourage you. I didn't do this very well growing up. And I saw a lot of men who did not sing. And there's women. There's you too. So don't think that you're just sliding by. Some of you don't sing. But I think primarily it's a guy thing. Teaching is an amazing way of showing the word of God and rooting it in our hearts. And you might be, like I don't really do a lot of other songs. In fact, I was even talking to Chris. I other songs, I, I, it's just like noise to me. Um, radio's hard for me and all that kind of stuff. I just don't do a lot. But when we're here and we have words on the screen, we're gathered as a body. That's a powerful time. And as I've begun to sing, I've experienced that joy. <clears throat> I think some people, we don't sing because we don't have the feeling. We're waiting for those feelings to arise. We choose to sing because we know grace comes. And we know that the feelings will come as we choose to sing. Don't reverse the order. Don't, don't demand the feeling so that then you'll choose to sing. We choose to because God's word shows us grace comes, and therefore we know feelings will come. It might take a while. It might not be the first Sunday. It might be like three Sundays or 20. But I want to encourage you to begin making that stride in Christ-likeness there. Okay, so I'm done there. You might feel your toes stepped on. You can come talk to me afterwards. Um, we can practice forgiveness and bearing and all that good stuff. Uh, lastly, 
The praise of Christ flows from us. Look at verse 17. Whatever you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You've been saved from the kingdom of darkness, and you've been brought into the kingdom of light. You've been saved from Adam, raised in Christ. You've been joined to the body of Christ, that you would form this new transformed humanity, which is the church, the body of Christ. And this is not a hobby. He says, whatever you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This means to be in Christ, means that we're pursuing Christ-likeness all 86,400 seconds in a day, all 604,800 in a week, and all 31,556,952 seconds in a year. And every year we pursue Christ-likeness for the glory of God. This means when we play tennis... When we cut hair, mow the grass, drive to work, go on walks, eat with our families, do laundry, pick up dog poop, yeah, that's a tough one, clean toilets, go on vacation, watch TV, go to school, do homework, play football, shoot guns, clean the toilets, vote, do oil changes, all of that is done for the glory of God. Everything we do, when you were raised with Christ by grace to be made like Jesus, he made a claim on every part of of your life. He didn't save part of you. Isn't that good news? He didn't say, I'll start something, see if you finish it. If you do, you'll, you can come into my heaven. No, he saves you, transforms you completely, and then he makes you more like him every day so that you would live for him. God saved you so that he would have all of you. I want you to notice this is not dry praise either. This is not some unemotional activity. We're not begrudgingly praising God either through the word or through songs. We're not saying, okay, I know God saved me, raised me. I'm now hidden in him, and one day I'll appear with him. Great. Let's just praise God now. I mean, sometimes that's how we act, right? I mean, sometimes it is a little bit how it comes across, but... What we see here in this passage is that we have great joy as we pursue the praise of God. Look at the last line there, verse 17. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. We praise him with thanksgiving. Go to verse 16. How do we sing? With thankfulness into our hearts. We're not muttering songs, but we sing them with joy. Verse 15. The peace of Christ rules our hearts and we are thankful. In Christ, we love peace. We want his peace to umpire our hearts. So what we see here is praising God and our joy and thankfulness are not at odds with one another. God did not save you for a boring life of glory to him. He saved you for immense joy as you glorify him. John Piper said it this way. He's a pastor, theologian, and just as we talked about, other Christians are used for our sanctification. John Piper has been greatly used in my own life. He said it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I just want you to think about that. God's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Meaning, we will glorify God most, not when we're sitting here, okay, I guess I have to disciple and sing songs and read the Bible. But as we experience joy in Christ, he is greatly glorified. The two go hand in hand. This means we take off sin and put on Christ for joy. We let the peace of Christ rule our hearts 
for joy. We study God's word for joy. We share the word with others for joy. We sing songs out of joy. Everything we do is joy. Because in Christ we've been saved completely that we'd glorify him in everything that we would do. You and I have been saved to dwell in the eternally happy kingdom of God. This is a picture of the church here on earth. And it's not something that we shoot for, but the spirit of Jesus lives in us that it would be a reality. If you've placed your faith in Christ, that means you've been raised with Christ. It means that right now you are hidden in Christ. I mean, he's making you more like himself right now. And for the purpose that when he returns, you will appear with him in glory. Do you see that? You've been saved from the kingdom of wrath, brought into the kingdom of joy where his son dwells. And we don't do this alone. We take off sin and we put on the character of Christ together. We let the peace of Christ rule our hearts together. We, we grow in the knowledge of God's word together. We teach and admonish one another together. We sing songs together. We glorify God together. We are a new transformed humanity in Christ. We need one another if we are to be made more like Jesus. That's the picture. It's amen. That's, that's how God has made us, designed us from a kingdom of self and brought us into the kingdom of himself. That together built upon one another, attached to one another in love, we would glorify God in everything that we do and have everlasting joy as we do so. Let's pray. Father, today we're given a picture of you, of what it looks like to live for you, of what it looks like to take off sin and put on Christ. And God, I know that there's areas in my life that I'm still needing to take off on a regular basis and putting you on. Lord, I pray that here is the church that you have revealed to us areas that we're to take off, areas that we're needing to put you on. Lord, thank you that you have saved us from our selfish, finite, lonely, angry kingdoms. And you have brought us to your beautiful, extravagant, loving, peaceful, eternally joyful kingdom. God, may we be excited about living together with you. Lord, may we help one another each and every day grow in Christ-likeness. May we know that we need one another. May we fight against whatever sin rises up within our hearts. May we take off that sin. May we kill that sin for the purpose of experiencing unity and love and peace with your body. Lord, may we regularly become more and more like you. Thank you, God, for the work you've done for us. And thank you, God, for the work you're doing in us. In your name, Jesus, amen.